We are starting a new series on the Minor Prophets. And uh, the Minor Prophets are, are a group of 12 prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, they're rarely read, uh, most times because prophets seem strange. Uh, they, they spoke to different people at a different time, different languages translated, and oftentimes you read them, and, and a lot of people are, uh, as they read them, uh, are intimidated by them, or they're just not books that we, we typically go to. And yet, minor prophets are, are some of the most uh, uh, applicable books of Scripture. They are very relevant. They were, they were written by guys who God called to speak to culture in, in the midst of chaos, to a group of God's people who were walking in a wayward way and a call back to repentance and purity of heart. Now, you want to talk about, we live in a world that uh, is far from God in a lot of ways. As people of God, we live in a culture that increasingly uh, we stand out. In fact, I read an incredible article this last week that said we used to, we used to live like we were in Athens, you know, we could use reason and talk to people about God and they would turn. But today, it's more and more we're like in Babylon, uh, where there's more and more people that say, we don't care about your God and we want nothing to do with Him. And this is increasingly dark times. And we're, we're spoken to with these 12 prophets who were serving in very dark times. And they teach us a lot of things about how to have a pure heart for God, how to turn to Him, and how to live for Him in a very faithless world in such a way that, that we live with His compassion, His mercy, and His love. It's a phenomenal thing. So I'm excited about this series. We're going to go through it from the first book uh, through the last. And really, the minor prophets, uh, the, the, the Jewish people did, is they actually put them onto one major scroll, so they're all put together. And this is how they're organized. We don't know. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily chronological. They're roughly chronological. Uh, the first six books tend to be thematic, where uh, they were the first six prophets chronologically, but um, they also talk more about uh, judgment, uh, about uh, brokenness. The last six talk more about redemption, so maybe it's thematic. We're not exactly positive exactly why they were put the way they were. It wasn't length. Today, uh, Hosea has 14 chapters, and... That's uh, one of the longer books, the Minor Prophets. And you say, Aaron, why are they called Minor Prophets? Well, here's why. Their books are shorter. The Major Prophets have much longer books. <laughs> there you go. So they are. But their message is just as powerful. Think about it as like uh, little shots of, of theological espresso. Right? There's a lot jam-packed into these things. In fact, in, in the New Testament, this book of Hosea that we'll be reading today, it is referred to several times in the New Testament, Matthew and, and Romans and 1 Corinthians. And it, these are called oracles of God. And a lot of the things that we say as Christians, like not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, you know that comes from Hosea? Or I'm going to pray a hedge of protection. You ever heard that? Like a bush of protection around somebody? Well, that comes from Hosea. God says, I'm going to do that around unfaithful Israel. There are a lot of things in this book that are part of our Christian experience, and this is where it comes from. So we're going to go through it today, all 14 chapters. And uh, the very first verse of this is with the introduction, and we learn a lot about the book from this. It says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now it's Jeroboam the second. And uh, from that, we learned some things here, just some basic stuff. And ah, it's really much smaller on that TV than it was on my screen. The author here is Hosea, son of Beery. Who was he? We don't know. 
But we do know this. We do know that he is the only of the prophets, the only one that actually lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we know this for some reasons. One, Beery was a name that was Samaritan uh, uniquely, but also his writings, uh, he talks about living there, which is another big thing, but also his writings, they, they're difficult to translate because he writes from a Samaritan dialect. And guess what happened to Samar- the Samaritans, the northern kingdom, Israel? They got wiped out by the Assyrians right after he wrote this. And so it was a whole dialect of the language that was obliterated from the place, face of the planet. So if you read in your Bibles, there's a lot of footnotes in there that says, we're pretty sure this is exactly what he, what he says, but he says it in a strange way. It's like if we go somewhere else in the country, like go to New York, and you try to listen to the people talk, and you're like, wow, that's much different, right? That's way, so he was unique. The time. Around 760, 710, he probably wrote uh, in that more likely 40 years um, versus 50, but that's on the far edges of depending on how, uh, you know, think about going back uh, several thousand years. That's not too bad. We get it within 10 years. That's pretty good. Um, But between 760 and 710 is probably a period of 40 years that he wrote this, most likely. And we nail those, those numbers down based upon the kings that he lists. And when the kings of Judah and Israel, when there was an overlap, and there's a 10-year overlap, so it depends on how long um, he was in that uh, thing. Now, the audience is the northern kingdom of Israel. And for those of you who might be new to Old Testament history, this would happen. Uh, God had Israel, which was the nation, and then they had a king uh, named David. And David was a phenomenal king. And then he had his son Solomon, who was a powerful king and really took over this large amount of land. Now, now Solomon was really wise, but he had a fool for a son. So when Solomon hands the kingdom over his son, the first thing his son does is uh, basically breaks the kingdom, not even in half. There was 12 tribes in Israel, and his son did such a great job that only um, three of the tribes, really two, stuck with him. The third one was the Levites. They had no choice, right, because they were the priests, and so they got stuck with there. But you have two tribes in the the tribe of Levi, uh, and then you have the northern ten, like ten tribes just walk away. And, And those ones go to the north, and they even take the name Israel which leaves the, 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 the lineage of David, King David, and his kingdom, which much smaller was the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and at Hosea's time, you can see on this map, uh, this is Israel, the big line, and, and really it was a time when he starts writing, was a time of great economic uh, growth for the northern kingdom. It was a time of great peace, and there's a reason for that. Normally there would be a, a big line between Israel and Judah. But the reason it's a dotted line is because King Jeroboam II was a powerful king. He was not real righteous, maybe a little bit more than some of the other northern kingdom things, but not by God's standards by, at all. But he was powerful. And what he did is he built an army and he, they did some neat technological advances. They were able to throw rocks and big things like that. And, and uh, the northern kingdom uh, above them, Assyria, the Assyrian Empire at that time was a little bit weakened and Egypt was a little bit weakened. And Jeroboam had economic power even over the southern kingdom. And so he was drawing taxes and stuff from the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom at this time, when, when God starts speaking to Hosea, was a time of great strength. And, and with that prosperity, there also came depravity. The northern kingdom was not faithful from really the beginning. The first thing the northern kingdom did is they set up a golden calf because the temple was down in Judah, and they, they said, we need our own place to worship. So they set up a golden calf, kid you not, very first thing they did, and they were adulterous from the beginning. 
And uh, now with prosperity, they were thinking even more. We don't need God. And so they used him in, a, in such a way that they said, we have relationship with him. They would use his name. They would invoke uh, religion. But they were walking very far from God. Now, uh, the historical background, if you want to read about what was happening during this time, if you want to go to Second Kings, chapters 15 through 17. How do we know that's the time? Well, because of the kings that are listed. And so you want to read what's happening in the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah during that time. Read 2 Kings uh, 13 through 17. Now, uh, here's the, the outline, basic outline of this. Um, there's the introduction, and then the book is, is pretty much divided into two major sections. The first one is Hosea's life. God uses Hosea and his family as, as a parable as a living illustration of what's happening in Israel. And for those of us who are new to the book, it's shocking what he does. Then, after the fourth chapter, the fourth chapter on, the last ten chapters of the book, God has this message of judgment and love for Hosea. And what he does is uh, there's some key people in there. There's Hosea. He's the prophet. And then there's Gomer. This is his wife. And we'll talk about the scandalous nature of that. And then their family which wasn't a real healthy family, they've got three kids. And uh, there's Jezreel, and there's Lo-Ruhamah, and there's Lo-Ami. Now, here's the thing with this. The last chapters, the last uh, ten verse uh, chapters of the book, the judgments that God brings, it goes like this. It deals with each of the kids' names and the, and the character that brings those judgments. And so there's three major sections in those last ten chapters that deal with what it says is this is where you're failing, this is where you're failing, this is what's going to happen if you continue with that, and then there's a call to repentance and a promise for restoration if they do. And so there's three different times that it goes through. So that's that. The theme of, of Hosea, if you get nothing more out of this book, is this, faithfulness. God's call for faithfulness and the necessity of it. So let's get into it. Uh, second verse, this is what we read. It says, when the Lord first began speaking through, uh, to, uh, to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute. What? <laughs> Can you imagine? What if like, you're hiring like, a pastor, you know, like Hosea, he's a, he's, a, he's a prophet. And I say, God tells me I got to go marry a prostitute. You'd be like, what? I'm sure he was that way that you just don't do that. And yet, God says to this man who was set apart for him, who loved him in this very dark culture, he says, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. What? This guy's going into it knowing she's not going to be faithful, that his heart's going to be broken. And God says, this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Remember, this was to a kingdom that was in the midst of prosperity. They felt strong. They felt very strong. They felt like everything was going their way. And here's this prophet saying, you are, you are a prostitute. You think that went over well? You say, when things are going well in our lives and our lives are filled with pride, it's hard to hear sometimes the reality of our depravity. So God was going to illustrate it for them in flesh and blood. The sheer shock of this to jolt them out of, of the comfort and the way that they had been living that was going to destroy them. And here is this faithful man. And he walks straight into this. Now, in this book, it's important for us to realize that Hosea then, God's using his life as a, 
as a parable for us. Hosea stands in for God. And he isn't God, but he stands in for him. And so we look at how Hosea acts and how God uses him, and we recognize this is how God wants to treat us, and this is God's heart for us. Now we see Gomer, and in this passage, this book, Gomer stands for, is a standard for, for unfaithful Israel, the prostitute. Now when we read this book, it's really easy for us to identify ourselves with Hosea, isn't it? That's the natural thing to do, because we're Christians. We're the godly people, of course, we're Hosea. No, we're Gomer. When you read this, you have to recognize that, that we're Gomer. And it's not a fun place to be. Now, with Gomer, Gomer was not faithful. And God quickly brings judgment and he says, this is the problem here. Here, we're we're married, but now bring charges against Israel, your mother. She is no longer my wife and I'm no longer her husband. Why? She's not faithful. There was a bond that she broke. Hosea didn't break this bond. He marries Gomer. Gomer goes out. She she has some kids by this point. And then what does she do? She's unfaithful. And the marriage bond is broken. And God points this out straight up right at the beginning. He says, listen, I have chosen you. I have been faithful to you. And you have not been faithful to me. You have not treated me like your husband. You have not treated me with fidelity. And so the bond is broke. And then he goes on and he describes how broken it really is by giving these three kids, these poor kids that she has, some very dark names. And the first one he talks about here is Jezreel. Now Jezreel is an interesting name because it actually means God plants. That's what the name is. And Jezreel was a valley in in Israel, the northern kingdom. And uh, it was... uh, uh, near Mount Tabor, and, and in that valley, a lot of big events took place, none of which were all that great. And she says, and God says, he says, and, um, says name his first child, and this was actually from Hosea, his son, name the child Jezreel, from about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in Jezreel Valley. Now, that's big judgment. Now understand what's happening in Jezreel, a lot of things. Deborah had a battle up there, things like this. Um, earlier on, Obadiah's time when uh, Ahaz was there, Jezebel was up killing prophets, and Obadiah hides a hundred prophets in the mountains around Jezreel uh, and survives that. But what he's talking about here, why he wants to name the child, the son Jezreel, is this. Uh, way back when, when uh, Ahab and Jezebel were, were the king and queen of Israel, they did something so despicable that God said, we're going to put an end to their entire lineage. And this is what they did. There was a man who was there, and uh, his, uh, he had this, this field that was near Jezreel, like right next door to Ahab's house. And Jezebel liked the field. She liked the vineyard. And so what did she do is they decided they're going to frame this guy for a crime he didn't commit, and then they murdered him. They hung him outside. They, they didn't just kill him. They killed him in such a way that he was completely shamed in front of the whole populace and left his body up there to rot as people walked by. And they took his valley. It was like this. And everybody knew that it was wrong, but nobody could say anything because might makes right. At least I thought so. And one of Ahab's military commanders named Jehu, he walks by this and he sees what happens and he vows in his heart, this is not right. We will avenge this man for what happened. 
Well, later on, God sends a prophet to Jehu and says, and anoints his head and said, you're the next king. And, and then that prophet says, you need to go and wipe out Ahaz's entire lineage. Well, Jehu was more than happy to do that. And in the Jezreel Valley, he kills Ahab, he kills Jezebel, throws her out of the window, lets dogs eat her, doesn't even bury her. And then he finds every descendant, every cousin, every nephew, everybody that was related to, to Ahab and slaughters them in, in the Jezreel Valley. And God says to Jehu, well done, good job. So what's God doing now? Saying, I'm going to avenge the blood that was there. Well, here's what happened. Jehu was commanded to go and wipe out Ahab and his family because they were unfaithful. Because they walked away from God. They, didn't, they, they treated each other with violence. And Jehu should have learned an important lesson from that. And Jehu went and he wiped out the king because he wanted the power. And yet he killed all the prophets of Baal. But what did he do next? It says in Scripture, as he went down and he worshipped the golden calf. His heart was never with God. And God says, you know, the violence that was on Ahab's house is now going to be on Jehu's house. Your kings will be judged because they're not righteous. Naming your kid Jezreel would be like naming your kid Chernobyl. Right? This doesn't bring up good signs, good things, right? And his son was going to stand there as a living witness that there was something broken in this relationship that God had with Israel. And it produced unrighteous children. Children that were not planted. And that's exactly what he begins to say. This was the charge against Jehu. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. Now I read that and I thought, my goodness, could that be said about us today? But he says, this is where Israel is. You're not planted. There's not faithfulness. You're not planting your life on me. You're a nation that was called for me. You're, there's no faith, no kindness, no knowledge of God. And it doesn't mean head knowledge. I understand the Jewish understanding of knowledge was of experience, that, that they actually knew God deeply, loved Him. And there wasn't that. And God goes on in that, in that passage to talk about how far they had fallen they didn't know God because they, they worshipped idols. It says that, that they looked to sticks to tell them the future. That they prostitute themselves with, with all these foreign gods, but they, but they don't look to the one true God. They're not faithful to Him at all. And then it says something else, that they prostitute themselves militarily and economically. They, when they recognized, when things started falling apart, that there was something broken, instead of turning back to God and saying, listen, we... We want to be planted on you. What do they do? Oh, they start making alliances with the northern kingdom of Syria and the southern kingdom of the south. They don't turn to God. They don't plant in him. No, they try to plant in anything but him. And God says, I'm going to be like a lion then. If you don't turn, here's what's going to happen. Here's going to be the consequences of what happens. Is I'm going to be like a lion to Israel, a strong, young lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces. I will carry them off and no one will be left to rescue them. Understand what he's saying here. Israel was supposed to be planted into God. That's what they were meant to be. They were supposed to have their roots sunk deep into God. They were supposed to know Him, rely upon Him. He was going to feed them, help them grow. But they were not planted. And because they were not planted, God will rip them out. And there will be no one or anything that's going to be able to keep them there. 
They should have been a beautiful plant for him, and yet he's going to pull them out like a weed. He's going to toss them away. There was something broken between God and Jezreel, between Hosea and Jezreel, right? That, that relationship has been broken. And God said, to, there's going to be another child. Soon it says Gomer became pregnant. Now notice it says Gomer became pregnant, not that Hosea and Gomer had another child. Gomer became pregnant and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Lo-Ruhamah, not loved. For I'll no longer, I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. You know how hard that would be growing up as a little girl? Like your name is I'm not loved. But here's the thing. There was a reason that God wanted her to be named not loved. And he talks about it in the, in the section where he deals with the lack of love in Israel. He says, O Israel, O Judah, where should I do with you? For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. Israel wasn't, was fickle. Said we love God one minute and the very next minute going out and doing anything but loving God. It was just a show. And he's saying, listen, you don't love me. And God was jealous for their love. He wanted their love. But Israel didn't love God. And so he points it out. And so he says, and he says, I want to show you love. Not offer sacrifices. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. But like Adam, you broke my covenant. You betrayed my trust. Do you hear the broken heart of God? He wants us to know him, but what they gave him instead, they gave him cold religion. It would be like a, a couple or like a family, right? You have a husband and a wife and they come together and, and they live in the same house and maybe from the outside it looks okay. But the wife is having an affair off to the side and her heart's very clearly there. And then she plays lip service to her husband. Maybe she gives him a card on their anniversary. Maybe gives him a little kiss on the cheek, but it's cold. There's no heart there. She goes through all the motions, but she doesn't love him and he knows it. That's exactly what it's like. Every one of her things that, that Israel does, all the religious acts, only point to the fact that her heart's not there and they become the very things or the weapons that hurt the heart of God. God wants our hearts, not our religion. But she was only willing to give religion. And the Lord says, All their wickedness began at Gilgal. And I, there I began to hate them. I will drive them from my land because of their evil actions. I will love them no more because their leaders are rebels. There's something broken between God and Israel. Israel's not loved because Israel fails to love God. And God talks about the third son, the third section of, of warnings. It says, After Gomer had weaned lo Ruhamah, she became pregnant again. Remember, it wasn't a Hosea's kid. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord say, said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people. For Israel is not my people and I am not their God. You say, God, oh, that's really harsh. And I think about it. God said, I didn't sign up for this. I called you to be my people, to be my very special people who would love me and who would serve me and honor me. And what do you do? You have violence. You hate me. <laughs> you, you prostitute yourself with other gods. You do all these other wicked things in my name. I'm not part of this. 
I'm not part of what you're doing. You slaughter each other. You use power and wickedness. I'm not part of this. And that's what he's saying. He's pointing it out. So in that section where he brings the low on me judgment, this is what he says. Move ahead. The people of Israel feed on the wind. They chase after the east wind all day long. They pile up lies and violence. They are making an alliance with Assyria while sending olive and oil to buy support from Egypt. Now, here's what he's talking about. The first part, like, what on earth? The people of Israel feed on the wind? Like, that's low calorie. Here's what he's talking about. They're trying to satisfy themselves where they can't be satisfied. They're trying to control forces that they can't control. It's like saying they're playing with fire. The east wind, when it comes through in Israel, apparently it's a big deal. It's like we get a nor'easter. And they're trying to control the wind. And God is saying, you guys are fools. You're playing with fire and you're going to get burned. And he explains exactly how they're playing with forces that are too big for them to even control. And he says, listen, firstly, they pile up violence and lies. They are selling out. They should be the people of God. They should be planted on God's word. They should know who he is. They should act different. But instead, in order to fit in with these other countries, what are they doing? They're acting like the people of other countries. That's, they're, they're picking up their culture and they're being violent and they're acting with lies and they're acting in an entirely different way. They, they look no different than all of the other pagan nations of the world playing with fire. And why are they doing that? Because they're not relying upon God for their sovereignty. They're not relying on God for their security. They're not relying on God for, for, for their prosperity. They're relying on these nations. Assyria, this powerful nation to the north, a very rich and powerful nation, and Egypt to the south. And by this time, while this is written, the northern kingdom was no longer as secure as it used to be under Jeroboam. In fact, they had several bloody turnovers by this point, and the nation's borders became compromised, and Assyria became very powerful, and and then. The northern kingdom thought, well, we need to protect ourselves from Assyria, so we're going to create an alliance with, with, uh, Israel, for, with Egypt, because maybe they'll protect us. It didn't work out so well for them. What it's saying is, you are acting just like the people of this world. You're not acting like you're mine. You are not mine. And so God says, the people of Samaria must bear the consequence of their guilt, because they've rebelled against their God. The next part is really hard for us to read. But it says, they will be killed by an invading army the little ones will be dashed to death against the ground. Their pregnant will be ripped open by sores. And you're thinking, this is the very reason I don't read Minor Prophets. <laughs> Understand, God says, you're playing with fire. God's not going to dash them to pieces. But you want to play with the Assyrians? This is how the Assyrians play. There are going to be consequences for your adultery. If you don't want to be mine, then I'm not going to treat you like mine, and I'm not going to protect you like you're mine. And the nations of the world are going to treat you like they treat everybody else. You're going to get what you've been asking for. And he warns them what's going to happen. And we see that there's brokenness. There's brokenness between God and Israel. There's brokenness because we were not planted. There was brokenness because we're not loved. We're broken because we didn't choose God. And there is brokenness straight up. And who made the brokenness? We did. But here's the amazing thing about God. Some people so ignorantly say that the God of the Old Testament is so different than the God of the New Testament. They say, where's the God of mercy in the Old Testament? I'll show you the God of mercy. Let's just take a look. 
God is amazing. There's a call to repentance. He says with Loami, with a nation that doesn't claim God, he says, turn back, repent. He says, never again will we say to the idols that we have made, you are God's. No, in you alone do the orphans have mercy. He's saying, turn back to God. Don't look to Assyria. Don't look to the other nations. Don't look to other gods for your security. Give God a pure heart. Turn back to God. And if you do that, you will find redemption. As the Lord says, then I will heal you. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine a husband with an unfaithful wife, so unfaithful, and he says, if you would just turn, and she turns, says, forgiven, forgiven, I will heal you of your of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds. My anger will be gone forever. See how amazing that is? They didn't didn't deserve it. But God said, if you would just turn back, you who are not mine, you will be mine again. He will remove that break. Only God can do this. What about Lo-Ruhamah? Not loved. I love this, one of the most tender passages you ever read showing God's heart for a lost world. It says, oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adama and, and demolish you like Zeboim? And you're like, where are those places? We don't know. God destroyed them. My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. No. I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God, not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living amongst you. I will not come to destroy. And our, our minds should go back to Jesus' words to, when he says that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, for, for he did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, God's rich and deep heart Though Israel was unfaithful, he says, I'm not going to destroy you. But here's what's required. For someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. And when I roar, the people return trembling from the west. And it goes on also from the north and the south and the east, from all over the world. But there's something that the people do. For those that don't love him, they will choose to follow him. We will love him again. And all God says is, if you give me your heart, he loves us with such depth, but he requires us to love him back. And once we do, do, he will come back and he will restore us. And that that break between us will be wiped out. Isn't that amazing? Well, he also deals then with Jezreel for the people who were not planted in him. He says to those people, this is the call of repent. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, now he will heal us. He has injured us, now he will bandage our wounds. This is an amazing God. We deserve to be destroyed. I don't think we fully get that. We all think we're such good people. But the reality is, is we're all rebels against God Almighty. And he has no obligation to save even one of us. But he will if we turn to him. If we turn back to him, one thing we can always count on with God is that he is loving and he is kind and he is ready to forgive a contrite heart. And so come back to him. That's the plea. There's a call for repentance. Give him your heart. Plant your life on him. 
and he'll accept you. That's the amazing thing. Have you ever really made somebody so angry and you apologized, you did everything you could to make it right, and they still reject you? And they have a right to reject you because you wounded them? That's what we've done with God. But the amazing thing is this God who has never done anything wrong, who has treated us right and loving from the beginning, when we come to him and say, please forgive me, he forgives us. He will bandage our wounds. And I love this promise. He says, yet a time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then, at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. Jezreel, who was not planted, will be firmly planted in God. What about Israel? Is what a day that will be. <laughs> the day of Jezreel, when God will plant his people in the land. In that day, you will, you will call your brothers Ami and my people. And you will call your sisters Ruhamah, the ones I love. Get this, God doesn't just remove the breaks. He changes our very identity. For those who are not mine, God will say you are mine. For those who were not loved and didn't love God, God will say you are now loved. For those of you who were not planted, God will say you are firmly planted and nothing will tear you out. God changes our identity. But you see, with Hosea and his life, there was, though God was going to do something to, to fix the relationship between the children and even change their identity, there was still brokenness between God and Israel himself. How will God fix the relationship between Gomer and Hosea? I think one of the hardest things that has ever been asked. Chapter 3, right at the beginning of the story, where God's talking to, here's, here's Gomer. She has three kids. Now she's back working on the streets. And God says to this man, he says, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. And we read in the following passages that then he does. Hosea goes and he buys her back. It's called redemption. He pays a very high price and it lists it out to the very last thing what he pays to bring her back. And he redeems this unfaithful wife. It should remind us of the New Testament it talks about in Romans. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to redeem us back from our infidelity. God was proving in Hosea's life, he was showing that it wasn't anything that Gomer did. She didn't come back in repentance first. When, when her husband had every right and everyone in the world would have said, leave her. She is unfaithful. Just get rid of her. And we could have walked away and everyone said, Hosea, you are completely righteous. You are fine. The problem with her, God says to Hosea, go back and buy her. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you your pride, but it's also going to cost quite a bit. It's going to be expensive. But go and do that. Because that's exactly what God does for us even when we were running away, even in the midst of our adultery with other gods, our adultery with, with idols in our hearts, with our adultery with all this, this world and the things around it, God came for us and he paid a high price and he redeems us. And the bond is broken there. That, 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 not the bond, the, the break was removed. 
God redeems unfaithful Israel. And he says, this is what's going to happen. I will make you my wife forever. Showing you righteousness and justice and unfailing love and compassion. To one who had been so unfaithful, God says, I'm going to be faithful. And he is the one who is ever faithful. And it says, on that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master, Israel. I will wipe the many names of the ball from your lips and you will never mention them again. Here's an amazing thing. God came to us in our infidelity, but then he changes our hearts. And though we had played the harlot with so many things, God will, will lovingly bring us back and we will come to a place where we be completely faithful to him. We will give our hearts to him fully and completely and we will want him. And we will not even mention those other things. Never again to drive him into his right jealousy for our hearts because he loves us that much because our hearts will be fully for him. And for the unfaithful wife, he says, I'm going to make you into a truly faithful wife. You're not just going to give me your fidelity. right? You're going to give me your heart. And so God changes. He wipes away the things that we used to identify ourselves by, the things that used to identify us in our very nature. We used to be unfaithful, but God says, I will make you faithful. We used to be unplanted, and God says, you will be firmly planted. We used to be unloved, but God says, you are loved deeply, forever loved. We used not to be his, but he says, you will be mine and mine forever. Fully, completely. There is redemption. But there's also reconciliation. Do you see that? God didn't just purchase us back so we can go to heaven and he can always look down upon us with that disdainful look saying, I remember what you did. I remember how you hurt me. I remember how unfaithful you were. No, he changes us. And there is full reconciliation. Nothing between us and God. That's something that only he can do. And he says, I will make you my wife forever showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. This is God. This is a God who is calling out to a nation and saying, come back. I don't want you to be destroyed. But if you don't turn, you will be destroyed. Israel didn't listen. 10 to 20 years after this prophecy was given. They didn't turn. And God took his hands off of Israel and the Assyrians came down. And Sennacherib came and he destroyed them. He destroyed their cities from the big fortified cities of Lachish, which was thought to be impenetrable, all the way down, all the way into to Samaria. He killed their kings. He destroyed, he killed their women. They did things to tortures that were unimaginable. In fact, there was a room, if you go into the Middle East now, where Sennacherib built an entire palace in this massive room that wraps around and he paints what he did to the Israelites when he destroyed them as a monument. And he put in there the gold that he stole from them and all of their idols as a way to mock them. God wants us to come back to him. He loves us. He pleads with us to give us our hearts, but we don't have forever. Today is the day of repentance because we don't know how many days we have left. God wants our hearts. He's pleading for our hearts. We need to respond. 
here are our applications for, for this book. I think there's so many, but to narrow it down to three to make it easy, the first is that faithfulness matters to God. It matters deeply to God whether we're faithful. If you walk and you, you say, I am a Christian, then, then you need to make sure you understand what that means. To be a Christian means that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That means that we understand that there is only one God. There are not multiple gods out there. Allah doesn't exist except for in the imaginations by some deluded people who are fooled. You understand that there is no equality between God and anybody else. When you are a Christian, you understand that there is one God and He is Almighty. And that we serve Him. When you're a Christian, you recognize that there is no other Savior other than Jesus Christ. There is no philosophy out there. There is no good works that you can do. There is no other religion that can make you right with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To give our hearts to anybody else or even to adopt multiple systems of philosophy and idea of how we're going to be made right with God is an offense to God Almighty. And he says he wants you. It's like this. When you marry somebody, you don't get to have a lot of little affairs on the side. You give your heart to your spouse. You are faithful to your spouse. Fidelity matters to God. He doesn't want our hearts to always be racing off after all these other things. It's be faithful to Him. There is only one God and there is only one Savior. And we must love Him. second thing is that love does matter to God. Is so much more important to him that you give him your heart than you give him your religion. Showing up on Sunday, if you're doing this just to have some like religious checklist so you feel better about yourself, you're missing the point. Or if you go and you serve other people and you don't do it because you love God, well, guess what? Who cares? Paul even talks about this. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, or I, I give everything I have to the poor, but I don't really love God or them, and I don't do it because of love. I just religion or or if even if i give my life even if i'm burned for my faith but i don't have love for god then i'm just a clanging symbol god doesn't want our religion he wants your heart he, he wants you to really love him to understand how deeply and how passionately he loves you how committed he is to you and loving God means that we love others too. How many times in Minor Prophets you'll see how God says, one of the things he brings against them is, says, clearly you don't love me because look how you treat one another. You act with, with injustice. You act with murder and violence. You don't care for one another. So it's clear you don't love me. To understand that if we say that we love God, that love must change the way we view this world and how we treat other people. It has to. Third thing that we see from this is identity matters to God. It matters a whole lot. We must claim Him as our God. Now, how is we were saved? We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But how do we do that? Well, it says that we confess Him, right? First, we believe that He actually is God, that He actually saves us. And then it says we repent. We actually we follow Him like He's our God. We, we do what we confess that we will. But then, it says that, that, that you confess, you identify with Him. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. God, can you imagine if you were married to somebody and your spouse, like whenever you went somewhere public, they were like, you stand over there. We're married, but you're kind of embarrassing. 
God's not like that. So if you're going to be with me, be proud. You are, you are united to God Almighty. Be proud of that. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God of salvation for all who believe. We need to identify with God. And that's why the baptism is such a powerful thing, where he says, when you, a confession of faith, you identify with him. You say, you know what? I'm dying to myself. I'm being raised again into a new life in Christ. The old me is dead, and the new one in Christ is the one that you now see. We need to identify with Jesus. But we also have to proclaim him as our God. We can't, it's not enough just to claim Jesus as our God. We have to proclaim him. We have to tell others. We have to be a light in this world. There's a reason that we're here. And he says, if you're mine, then go and let your good works shine, but give glory to God because of me, because you can do them. Or tell others what I have done, because I don't just love you, but I love them as well, this dark and this broken world. He's called us to be his ambassadors, his priests. He doesn't use these terms lightly. He tells them because we have purpose. We have to proclaim him. We have to stand with God. And in this culture, when we're living more like a Babylon than it was like it was in Athens, when it's going to cost us something, stand with him. Don't lose heart because identity matters to God. And the fact of the matter is that we can be identified with God is amazing. It is just amazing. So, as we bring this first book to a close, what do you do? Well, if you take out your connection card, I have some ideas. On the back side of it, here are some things that we can look for that you can be doing this week as we help bring this book into some application to our life. The first one is memorize Hosea 12.6. Come back to God. Act with love and mercy. Always depend on Him. When you see the fidelity and the love and the ownership and rooting our lives in Him, let that word become not just something you memorize, let it be the markings of your very life. Let the Word of God change you and transform you. Maybe this week you say, I'm going to spend time not just memorizing the letters of that, but praying that as a prayer over my very life and say, God, give me this heart. And know that God will take us back even when we fail. It's an amazing thing. How about this? Read the book of Hosea. Don't take my word for what it says. Read it. You can see what it says. You can see God's heart in this. Spend some time with God's word and and let his heart for love and compassion and faithfulness, let him speak to you. Ask him how you can apply his word in your life. How about this? Pray. This is a fun one. Renounce and return. What do I mean by that? Not many of us are worshiping sticks in our house. If you are, then we'll need to talk. But... But there are things in our life that we turn to, right? Instead of God, just like Israel didn't just turn to, to, to idols, they also turned to Assyria and they turned to, to economics. They turned to political power for their security. There are things in our life that we turn to all the time where God says, I will take care of you. Isn't what he said? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then he'll take care of all those things. How many times in our life we're so afraid of losing those other things we're afraid of losing our comfort. We're afraid of losing our, our, our security. We're afraid of losing our finances. And, we, and then we sell out. We live in such a way that it's not like God is the Lord of our life. We don't act in such a way like our security really comes from him. And we sell out. Maybe it's looking at our life and saying, if I'm not living the life that God wants for me, why? Who am I really following? And renounce that because maybe you're following an idol in your life and you didn't even recognize it. But the, the call from Hosea is, be faithful. 
So maybe it's one of those things you look and say, I'm going to do, do a heart check this week. And whatever it is that's standing between me and faithfulness to this God who's so faithful to me, I'm going to renounce that. Whatever the cost, I'm going to renounce it. And I'm going to return to God. Maybe that's what the thing is. That's also called repentance, by the way. And it's something that we're called to the entire, our entire life as Christians. And know that God will be there with open arms. And his promises always remain true. He will be there for you. How about this? Identify. Maybe this is a tough one for us because in our culture right now, it is not popular to be a Christian, especially an evangelical Christian, is it? It is not popular. You want to go on social media and you say, I'm a Christian, just wait for the hate storm to start flying, right? It's going to happen. That's okay. Because God loves those people too. And we're going to identify with God because he's identified himself with us, which should just blow our minds. And you know what? This week, say, I'm going to make a point in my life to make it very clear, not just by the words that I say or putting a Jesus bumper sticker on the back of my car, but by the character that, that I choose to live by, by the values that I choose to live by, by how I treat other people. I'm going to start to, to adopt God's priorities into my life. I'm going to follow him more fully. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to identify myself as a Christian with my words, but even more with my life. Maybe that's the challenge that you need. Don't be afraid to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Don't be afraid to claim him as your God. This week, to say, you know what? I'm going to make a change and stop being ashamed of the God who loves this world so much. And I will identify with him, this God who is so amazing. Maybe there's some other thing that you need to do. You can write that down on there because I don't think of everything. Or maybe there's another decision that you have to make. Let us know. Or maybe you have a prayer request this week because we have a God who hears our prayers. And we will be praying for you all week long if you write that down. Make sure you write those down. Here in just a minute, we'll take our offering. And as we take the offering, drop these in the offering basket as well. And make this an offering of yourself back to God. Let's pray for our decisions and our offerings now. Please join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your kindness. Lord, that though we have walked away so many times, even every day we sin, that you are so faithful to us, that you love us, and that you have removed all of the blocks between us and you, the blocks that we put up there. But even more, Father, that you love us enough that you transform us from the inside out. And though we have done everything as humans to separate ourselves from you, you have called us back and you said, you are mine. So let us claim you to be our God. And Father, in so many ways that we have shown you disdain and we have rebelled and we have not loved you, God, you loved us by sending us Jesus. And you've given us your Holy Spirit. And Father, though we were not loved, you say we are loved, so help us to love you. And Father, though we have not planted ourselves firmly in you and trusted you the way and upon your promises, the way that you've called us to, Father, I pray that you would plant us individually and as a church firmly upon your word and upon your promises. Our hope is in you and we love you. And Father, though we were unfaithful, we want to have hearts of fidelity. Help us to love you fully and completely in every single way. Lord, let us love you the way that you deserve to be loved. And Father, for these gifts and these tithes and these offerings, I pray that you would just accept, you would accept these as expressions of our love and of our obedience and our dependence upon you. May they bless your heart. And God, I pray that you would use them 
to further your kingdom, to bring glory to your name, we ask in Jesus' name.